Welcome to Critical Thinking Required, hosted by LBW. Our goal is simple. We want to challenge you to think differently about finance and business. Join us and start the journey today. Welcome to Critical Thinking Required and part two of The Doctor Is In. You're with your hosts, Tim Bickmore, and my two colleagues, Dan Weiss and Nathaniel Leach. And we have our good friend, Dr. Ross Goldberg, back with us. In our last episode, we spoke to Ross about the impact of COVID-19, both economically and health-wise, and how maybe those two things are tied together and aren't separate ideas. We also spoke about the medical industry and how to keep it afloat as the majority of it's been shut down. And we addressed the potential changes in the healthcare industry and get Ross's thoughts. And then we got Ross's expectations of reopening the economy, which was very fascinating. So please join us for our next episode as we continue to speak with Dr. Ross Goldberg. One question that I do have that I've just heard a lot about and just more curious from your standpoint is a lot of people talk about, obviously from an economic and then the life, like you have lives, people may die, but you know, is the cure more destructive than the disease? Um, and then they talk about the herd mentality. It's like, what is your thoughts of, you know, are we just flattening the curve to spread out cases so that everybody can pretty much be exposed over a, a, a singular time frame so it's more spread out? Or what are your overall thoughts on like that herd mentality? And then the cure is worse than the disease. That's a great, you know, there's all these slogans that come out, you know, and you hear the politicians say it. As soon as one of them gets it, they all just kind of run with it. Um, but there's an interesting concept in there with the cure better than the disease is, again, I go back to my surgical roots. You know, I do a risk benefit analysis every time I look to operate on someone. Is the risk of what I'm going to do as a surgeon greater or less than the risk of the disease? I mean, that's honestly, there's even a, if you look at people who are in line for like liver transplants, there's actually a score that does that. Is the disease going to kill the patient or the, or is the operation going to kill the patient? And there's a, a scoring system for that based on data to say which one is more at risk and you can help guide your treatment plan. It's the same concept, and we hope. I think there's a hope for herd immunity. We don't know if there's going to be. Take the flu. Do we have herd immunity for the flu? No, we get vaccines every year, and it's a vaccine for one of the strains. Um, so people still get the flu, even though if you get the flu vaccine. I didn't have the. I didn't get the flu vaccine for years, and obviously, working in a hospital, they don't really give you an option. So for the last several years, I've gotten the flu vaccine, and. Uh, you know, I didn't get the flu before then, you know, I've gotten pneumonia, but it has nothing to do with the flu vaccine. Um, but so where is that curve? We don't still don't know enough about the virus to know if we can even get herd immunity. Uh, is it, we don't even know if you're, I mean, that's why I said the antibody test right now, all it does is tell you you've been exposed to it. It doesn't tell you if you're immune from it. So you can, and we had, there are that handful of cases that I know about where people have been infected again, even though they've been exposed and they healed and they got infected. So flatten the curve is honestly, that whole line came out really about resource utilization is you don't want to overwhelm your hospital systems. And this is a shout out to all those family docs out there. Cause I know a lot in Arizona, obviously, like they worked hard to keep those patients out of the hospital if they could. So they were calling them every day. They were monitoring them. There's lots of ways with what technology you can monitor from home. You know, these tricks like that we're learning about what works, what doesn't like proning patients. So lying on your belly um, before you have to get a, a respirator put in can actually help it, it, it. Believe it or not, changing your position does affect the ability for the lungs to work different ways. So people are doing that at home. Like there's lots of little things we're doing 
and trying to learn from and use to keep people out of the system. But, you know, the hope is, is that we all eventually get exposed and we're immune to it, or there's a vaccine that we can give and we're done. I just don't know. I, I, I'm hopeful for it. I mean, you hear everyone saying they have a vaccine now. It's the fastest we've ever built any vaccine in our lives. And there's a reason why we go through trials. Like science takes time. If we did science the way kind of the tech companies kind of exploded, you'd have a lot of hurt people because we don't know. Like take these drugs that people thought would be really beneficial. And then as we study them more, not so much. So it, it just takes time and data. And we're in a, we're a society that's not very patient. You're taking things that require us to have the most patience. And I've done bench research. So, so I've done lab work. I'll never do it again, but I had to, I've done it in my career. And the, the running, not joke, but kind of the way it is when you start doing like lab work is if you don't fail within the first six months, you haven't done your job because you've got to start using experiments and trying and you're going to have failures. The same thing here where some things are going to work, some aren't. But unfortunately, we're talking about lives are being lost every day. So there's immense pressure to, to get through this quickly. But, you know, there's only so much we can do from a logic, physics, scientific standpoint without hurting more people. So there's that cure versus disease, which is more lethal. You know, it's just it, it's a very difficult balance, especially when we're seeing people die every day. You know, unfortunately, in my line of work, I, I been around death. It's just something that's part of what I do. I take care of patients. There's a spectrum. Death is at the end. Um, it's something none of us can escape. I've seen it come in a variety of ways. You know, obviously with my work with cancer, our patients and things like that, or, or trauma patients and things in that nature too. So there's pressure to want to not have people get hurt and die, but you know, there's only so much we can do any given time. And we're hoping to find the right way to protect the most number of people that we can um, from this. Ross, have, have, have medical facilities, how much effort do you think at this point has gone into, well, how are we going to make this function differently at this point? Is that, has that been able to be addressed at all, or is it so much of we have to address these, obviously, um, immediate concerns from a health standpoint that we can't take a look at that? I know you mentioned to me on Sunday a book about, uh, you know, I can't remember the title, but if Disney ran a hospital, yeah. um, I imagine it would show probably a lot of uh, creative, in-depth planning that would lead to efficiencies. Are those kind of conversations, have they, have they begun at this point? So those conversations never really stop. Um, it's that old adage, and again, take this with the tongue-in-cheek as it is, is you never get, let a good crisis go to waste, right? There are opportunities within this pandemic, as horrible as it's been, that gives us opportunities at a system level in a hospital, a state level and a federal level of our infrastructure on there are problems that we need to fix. So again, now that we're aware of the problems, it would be pretty stupid to ignore them and to not start planning for them. So you do both. It is the same approach we do in medicine, right? You have an acute problem of a problem of a chronic issue. So you're treating the acute issue while also treating the chronic problem. So Yes, we had to acutely redesign everything for COVID. You know, I remember the phone call. I remember the Saturday. It was the week the weekend before I moved apartments. And I got a phone call from the chief medical officer and chief nursing officer of the hospital and they said, All right, this is this is middle March. We're worried. We're gonna cancel all elective surgery starting Monday. 
can you please contact all the surgeons and, and go through and cancel all the unnecessary surgery on Monday? This was Saturday. I said, okay. So an hour and a half later, that was done. And then it's like, we're going to have to do this, by the way, every week until we don't know when. So I went, okay, and then started cutting our clinics. And so, all right, now we're in that mode. Well, now, like I said, we have telemedicine has exploded for us. How are we going to use that going forward? Like even we're using it in the general surgery clinic. I, all I did today was telemedicine calls. I did screening calls of all new referrals to find out how urgent their case was. Do they need to be seen now or can we wait till this thing has calmed down? And then I'm either putting them in our clinic schedule that way. So this may become our normal part of life. What's it going to look like? We don't know. Um, looking how our ORs are run. Oh, there's so much room for, for, to remove inefficiencies because we need to right now. There's no choice, but the idea is start laying the groundwork for what you want the future to look like. Like I've been threatening, like I'm involved with the OR our block times. Like everyone has set times they can operate. I've been threatening for years that I want to rip that thing apart, that I've been trying to collect the data because I think we could do it more efficiently. This is forcing our hand to look at it from different angles and a different viewpoint. So I'm going to look at it and see what it shows. It'll be a learning opportunity while we're trying to get people in on how we can make our system more efficient. This system needs to be more efficient. Our infrastructure is horrible. The, the, the lack of infrastructure is not anyone's particular fault. We've let it erode for decades. But can you imagine if we had a more robust public health system where we could actually do contact tracing, we could have isolated people and found at-risk groups early on, we would have never have gotten to this point. So there's a lot to learn that we need to start planning now. And again, my role as president of ARMA is to worry about the now and the future. And I have started to have those conversations with people about what is telemedicine going to look like. It's funny, my, I've been president for about three and a half weeks now. It's been a very interesting time to take over. But my plan from a year ago when I started to lay out my presidential year was I wanted to tackle the infrastructure in my state. I thought the medical infrastructure was lacking. A lot of rural areas. You know, we've got reservations. This is now showing that we need to really look at that so there's an opportunity to implement changes that will be positive for everyone. So we have to. We, we, would, be, we would not be responsible in our oath to take care of people if we don't think on a systemic level on how to fix things for everyone and provide better care for everyone where they have better access to it. That's the big thing is delivery and access of the care. We know we have the best healthcare ability in the planet, right? We have, all, we have all the talent, we have all the minds. It's how do we get it to everyone in the best way possible. This is exposing flaws that's not a single person's fault, it's a collective problem. But now maybe it will give us a chance to force the issue and make it better for everyone. I'm a little idealistic with it, I understand that. I understand the society and world we live in, but I also know that there are times to put pressure and leverage, and this is a time but when things are got, we got a handle on it, you know, I think like physicians like myself need to be more vocal and say, look, we need, we need to listen to us now. Like we've done it your way. Good job. Let us help now because we're telling you we know what's wrong and we can see it. And what's fascinating too about some of your last comments there, Ross, is um, I, I read a great book by a Dan, I think it's Dan Case, The Third Wave. And he essentially states that, you know, he, he takes, the thought process of the internet, right? You had the first wave, the internet came. Then you had the second wave, you had gaming. And then you had the third wave where you actually started creating legitimate disruptive innovation within longstanding industries, banking, health tech, all of that. So it's funny, I, I listened to you talk about this infrastructure change and I think, well, can't tech solve that? Can't, can't tech just come in and, and solve the problem? 
But do you think that it's further than that? Like when you talk about infrastructure change within the healthcare system, just for your state, let alone the nation, are we talking about multiple organizations having to coordinate to actually fix that infrastructure? Or are we saying, hey, we can have a couple solutions? I mean, I'm assuming it takes a lot of people to come together to make that happen. It, it's a yes to your second one. I could I, I, I push back. If tech could just do it, tech would have done it already. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and Dan and I joke. So, I mean, we have Epic as the electronic medical record for my institution. And I'm kind of one of our Epic super users. Uh, they sent me to Epic like multiple times last year. So I think I actually own property in Madison now. I've been there so much. But that's an example of disruptive. Look, I'm a left-handed surgeon, so I can't read my own handwriting. So Epic's really good for at least you can see what I'm writing and see what I'm thinking. There's advantages there that have shifted and blown things open, but there's disadvantages with the system because that's actually a coding and billing system that is trying to be shoehorned to be clinically based. So we've got to think the other way around. Tech has a role, but it's not just tech. Um, I hosted something for Sages, one of the societies you mentioned, the, the very long-winded one, we, the abbreviation Sages, it's easier to say. Um, we had an innovation weekend in February, and I was asked to host part of it, an advocacy uh, summit. And I put in a room, uh, I had a representative from insurance companies, uh, industry, so you know, physical devices we use, uh, hospitals, surgeons, uh, at the FDA was there, um, a group called the Medical Device Consortium, uh, Innovation Consortium was there. And we had a discussion about the future of GI surgery healthcare, about concepts, because right now the way the whole system is how you get reimbursed for things is they have codes. Well, you've got to research something and prove that it's worth it to get a code. That takes years. So people are doing new innovations without being reimbursed, which is a money loser, which is you can't really sustain. So we came together to say, how do we blow up the system? Like literally, that was my question. I sat down and said, okay, we have four hours. Let's redesign the entire system. Imagine it didn't exist. These are the kind of conversations we need to have. And to be honest, we didn't have enough people in the room. We're going to do it again. Uh, in fact, I kind of got chest pain when I realized that I got asked to lead this thing, which the pandemic has kind of threw a monkey wrench in it. But they're like, all right, you can run all that, right? I'm like, run all of what? Like you can help coordinate, you know, a national GI surgery consortium through the organization with all these people, right? I'm like, sure, in my spare time, I don't know what I'll do on Sunday, but okay. So no, it's, it's complex, but you know, another group that wasn't there are the patient advocacy groups, right? Patients need to be a part of this conversation. So you need everyone involved. And look, as a surgeon, I have at least an opinion on everything, whether I know about it or not, because I'm a surgeon, right? So I've got one viewpoint, but so do the patients, so does industry, so does the hospitals. Everyone has to play a role and everyone has to be involved. And so it's a much bigger project and it sounds very daunting. It gets very scary when you talk about the scope because yeah, the state alone, you know, 7 million people, lots of rural areas, a huge range of patient populations, issues, and now take it across the country, which is so diverse. How on earth do we do that? Well, we do it one step at a time. Like this isn't gonna be solved tomorrow, but we need to start having the conversations. You need the right people in the room or you need the people who aren't afraid to have the conversation. And what people also need to do is stop protecting their territory. The role, the role of silos needs to be blown up. We're in this together. And yes, you can have an ego, but there has to be a ceiling to that ego so other people can fit in the room too and talk about it. And you also have to be open-minded to think that maybe you don't have the best answer yourself and that listening from other perspectives gives you a better idea. I've learned over the years, and I laugh when you said the disruptive part, because I've taken a bunch of leadership courses, right? As you go up, you get mandated to like 
take all these leadership courses or you apply. So I've been to a bunch of them. And it's fascinating to talk about that innovation disruption, right? Talking about IBM, talking about the whole Apple computer concept, you know, and all of those industries that have blown things apart, right? How the PC, that personal computing concept blew apart the big multinational organization, you know, that was the behemoth. And in several years, they couldn't move fast enough. So we need to do that with healthcare. It's going to be scary because it's not going to look like what it is right now. I don't know what it's going to look like. I'm kind of curious, but I also want to be in the middle of it, helping make the decisions and not have it done to me. You know, I, for someone who does a lot of political advocacy, my favorite line, and of course I joke and say it's an old Klingon proverb, but it's obviously, I don't know who quoted it, but it's said so much now, is if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. So if you're not there having a seat to deal with it, you're going to be left behind or run over. It's that old, it's that Will Rogers quote, right? You can, you can sit on the train. If you sit on the train track and get run over by the train, like you've got to keep on going still. I, I just completely destroyed that quote. I apologize, but you get the concept. It's, but it's that, it's that concept that you have to think and move forward. You know, that is the basis of medicine. Medicine, you know, if we had been stagnant, you know, you come to see me and I release your evil humors with leeches. And we, we still use leeches, by the way, but for completely different reasons. And they actually are a treatment for plastic surgeons. Um, but that would be it. I would like, you know, I would use no anesthetic and just cut off limbs if they're no good, not try to salvage them. Or if you had cancer, I'd tell you to go, you know, go eat, you know, go eat something and go to the desert and be done with it because there's nothing I can do. We've obviously become, come a long way from that. And we have to keep on going forward. This is where the innovation really plays in. And I don't know where it's going to come from. It's going to come from somewhere we're not expecting, which is going to be the interesting part. You're right, Ross. Silo effect can be a very devastating, dangerous thing that leaves, uh, that leaves us at significant disadvantages. We really appreciate your insight here. You've had some outstanding points, and, uh, and we appreciate you taking time to share those points and talk about the economic impacts um, throughout healthcare with the, with this current with the current uh, COVID nineteen situation that we all find ourselves in, and uh, thank you also for the hard work that you and so many others in the front line have put forth. I uh, I only wish that we we heard more from people like you that are that are face to face with this and, and got got perspectives like this that are so valuable. Uh, be before we finish ra wrapping up here, we do like to just go around the virtual table uh, in, in this case and just leave with a thought, a comment uh, ab about really the subject matter that we just discussed. And I can start that out and we always like to give the courtesy to leave our, our guests with the final word. So um, I'll start out by just by mentioning, and we didn't really talk about this so much, but Ross and I did over the weekend. Uh, you know, I remember what it was like to fly 20 years ago before 9-11 occurred. And uh, I have found myself on plenty of airplanes and gone through plenty of airports since then. And although I think that compared to what we saw in uh, 2001, um, things have loosened up. You know, Ross has a pass. He just skips lines. I've seen him do it. Uh, and, uh, and others do it, too. And some of those policies have lacked. But traveling still 20 years later is not what it was like pre-9-11. And so, I think in this case, there will be changes to our uh, economy, to the way that we live. And even though time will pass and some things will ease up, perhaps, I do not think it will ever be the same again. And so uh, that would be my final thought of, of the evening.
Uh, I can go next and then I'll push it on to Nathaniel. Uh, I have two thoughts that actually came out of this. And one is which we, we did, we talked, you know, Ross hit on it was the mental health piece. And the reason why, you know, that thought comes to mind is it really is scarcity, right? So if you have economic scarcity, if you have scarcity with, within, you know, a social aspect as well, you can become irrational and make irrational decisions. And it becomes very difficult, regardless if you want to do it or not. And the a book that I always like to talk about with a lot of our clients and prospects or who I talk to is a book that's titled Scarcity, Why Having Too Little Means So Much. Um, and I do think that's a big deal. It's a hard thing to balance, as Ross had mentioned. But in times like this, when you are having some of those issues from not being able to see people or get out, making financial decisions is probably not the best thing to do today. Just put it on pause. Just hold off. Just wait. The second thought is I think Ross did an excellent job explaining the complexities of the healthcare industry. And I did misquote the book. It is actually by Steve Case and it's called The Third Wave, not Dan Case, but Steve Case. Um, and I would go back to, I hope that in COVID, what COVID-19 can, can do for not just the healthcare industry, but for I think our country is that tech is not going to solve the problem. Tech will be a part of the solution, but it won't solve it. It still means that we have to come together from multiple industries to be able to redesign old structures, if that's financial, if that's healthcare, where tech can help, but it isn't the sole solution. And so when you're, I, and I say that because when you're looking at investing in health tech, health tech or, or some of these industries that are so convoluted and complex and webbed and have multiple voices, it's not the easiest to pick the winner. <laughs> it's just not because there's, there's so much more to it. There's regulation. You have to get regulators involved. You have to get you know, patients involved. You have to get insurance agents involved so, or insurance companies. So it becomes this convoluted um, picture. And I hope that we can come together and actually people will come to the table to start talking about how can we get this done. And maybe technology can help get it done a little bit quicker. But you still have to get the right people around the table. Um, so I appreciate Ross's thoughts on that. And that's what I got for today. I don't have much. Uh, Ross, thank you for being on our podcast. It's been fascinating to hear your thoughts on such a range of important topics. This is a, clearly a time of change brought on by an unfortunate catalyst, in this case, COVID-19. And I think people need to be prepared for what those future changes bring. Uh, in the end, though, I, I hope that this unfortunate chain of events can potentially lead to some positive changes to the underlying healthcare system, as you, as you mentioned. I guess that's me. Um, so I'm going to try to stay actually on a positive note, but I'm going to go a little convoluted and I apologize. And I'm going to play off something Dan said. So of course, to add to my history, he mentioned September 11th. Obviously that's a date we all know. I was a third year medical student in Manhattan on September 11, 2001. I actually started my surgical training at a place that no longer exists called St. Vincent's Catholic Medical Center. Uh, the reason St. Vincent's has, a, has an important role in New York history for lots of reasons, but uh, particularly that day is that was the receiving hospital for all the victims from 9-11. So I have a connection through 9-11 in a variety of ways. And the reason I'm bringing up 9-11 is not, it is an, a different tact. And I look at, you know, that is an example of extreme stress to our entire system way of life, thoughts as in a country, as a species. We're in something like that again. And what I take great hope from is that in times of great 
peril or stress, we have proven throughout history that that is when we are at our finest when we work together. And so I am of the strong belief, this is the idealist in me and the optimist coming out, that we will coalesce because we've seen it. Um, I will tell you that, you know, I'm terrified of all of this. You know, it's, it's rare to be scared these times and I'm not truly on the front line, right? I'm not in the ICU. I you mean, know, I have my N95 mask, but I'm not in the ICU taking care of these patients every day. God bless those people who are. Um, the nurses, the ICU docs, like all of them. But I'll tell you, my hospital, my leadership has been really transparent. We know every day the number of cases we have and where we are and how they're doing. Whenever, when one of these patients who's been really sick gets to leave, they get a applause line as they go out because we're all really excited for them. It's a great thing. But the morale's been really high. We're in this together. Everyone came together from all parts of the hospital system to work together on this issue and deal with it every day. We have an 11 o'clock meeting, a virtual call every day, um, led by our chief medical officer with everyone on where we are with supplies, plans, and everyone's been really, really upbeat because we all have each other's backs. So that is a, an example of how if we expand that, take all the political junk out of the way. People are making noise to make noise sometimes. Um, I personally believe a lot of people who do the saber rattling is because they're scared. And they don't know what else to do. Um, you talk about the irrational buys, it's the toilet paper buy. Uh, there actually is a psychologic concept behind that. It's a control issue. Right now we're under attack by an enemy we can't see, so you wanna have some control in your life and since you don't feel safe, buying toilet paper makes you feel safer, so you buy all of it. Because uh, at least you have control over something. And we're laughing, but that's actually been talked about as a safety mechanism that we have because we're driven by not rational thought, but emotions. Um, that's our strength as emotional creatures. But I believe in, in our ability to come together and fight this off. And you are seeing that. You know, take the pockets of noise away. The, the Twitterverse does not represent who we are. And, and you're seeing people every day helping each other, coming together, supporting one another, and trying to find solutions. And I think that's when we're at our best. And I think you'll actually see the best of us come forward as we move forward. And I look forward to seeing what we come up with. It, I, I think there's a lot of positive that we can gain from this, from the tragedy that we're experiencing right now. Thank you so much, Ross, for joining us. We really do appreciate your time and all the work that you've put in. And thank you to all our listeners. And I, I wanna give a final shout out to all of the frontline workers. Um, we really do appreciate all of your help and um, what the services that you do provide. So thank you for listening to a couple of guys talk about stuff they love, and we will talk to you next time. Thank you for taking the time to start your journey of thinking differently and listening to LBW talk about stuff they love. Until next time. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual on any specific security, on any specific broker-dealer or custodian. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments, broker, dealer, or custodian may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinion of Leach, Bickmore, and Weiss Wealth Management, LLC. Leach, Bickmore, and Weiss Wealth Management, LLC is a registered investment advisor. 
Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Leach, Bickmore, and Weiss Wealth Management LLC and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. No advice may be rendered by Leach, Bickmore, and Weiss Wealth Management LLC unless a client service agreement is in place.